0: from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 45 to 52, and can be found on page 1009. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened.
1: right there is what it's like working with those two (laughs) right so you know there are some passages in the bible that you read and immediately your spirit sings and you're really excited and you think gosh this is incredible so for me if I think about passages like that I would think of the story of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego (laughs) (laughs) don't make me ask you to leave But there are other passages that you read them and you have to wrestle with them a bit before you can come to a place where you're comfortable with them. And I have to say that this was one of those stories. When I um, first read this story, it reminded me very much of the story of the squirrel, which I'm sure a lot of you will have heard, but I'm going to tell you anyway so you know what I'm talking about, the people who haven't. So the story is about a vicar... And it's the beginning of his service, and what he normally does is gather the children together and give them a quick lesson before sending them off to children's church. And this particular Sunday, he had decided to um, talk about the importance of industry, and he was going to use the squirrel as an object lesson. So he decided to, um, the way he was going to do this is by asking them a lot of questions. So he said, I'm going to describe an animal and i want you to put your hand in the air as soon as you can guess the animal that i'm describing he said this animal can be found in this country it lives in trees it can be gray or red it has little paws and sharp teeth anybody yet it eats nuts sometimes loses them really nobody yet okay it's got a great big bushy tail finally this little boy tentatively puts his hand up oh i said oh thank goodness i'm so pleased johnny tell everybody what is the animal that i'm describing and johnny says well i know the answer is jesus but it sounds a little bit like a squirrel And to be honest, when I read this passage for the first time, I felt um, a bit like little Johnny. Because this passage also asks the question, not what am I describing, but who is it that I am describing? Who is this man who can walk on water, who can calm a storm, who can feed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish? Who is it who can heal the sick, forgive the sinner, and raise the dead? Is he a sham, a prophet, the Messiah, or somebody else? For many years, when I tried to answer this question, I was like the little boy. I knew that the answer was uh, supposed to be Jesus. This man is Emmanuel, God with us. He is love incarnate. But to me... This narrative didn't seem to describe somebody who was loving. In this passage, he seemed to have very little compassion at all. Let me explain. So if we look at just before this passage, we know that um, the disciples and Jesus have been ministering for a long time. And it's been so manic that they haven't even had time to stop and eat And it got so bad that Jesus said, I tell you what, we're just going to get in the boat and row to the other side of the lake for some rest and relaxation. So they get in the boat, they row across the lake, but by the time they get to the other side of the lake, the crowd has amassed again. So instead, they don't stop, but um, Jesus performs the miracle of the loaves and fishes. And... um, At the end of the loaves and the fishes, there were more scraps. If you haven't read the story, you have to read the story. Great story. Uh, But there are more scraps than there were fish in the beginning. So incredible. And the, the disciples have collected all the scraps, and this is where we join them. So in verses 45 and 46, at the end of this incredibly long day, we see Jesus order his disciples to get into the boat and row across the lake again while he disperses the crowd and disappears up the mountain to pray. And then in verses 47 and 48, we discover that they have been gone for some time when Jesus sees the exhausted disciples from his mountain outlook. So by this time, they've been battling against the waves for hours, but they still haven't made any progress and they still haven't reached the other side of the the lake. And let's remember, this wasn't a sailing boat, this was a rowing boat. Who here has ever tried rowing? I tried it for about two minutes. That was enough for me. It is completely exhausting. It uses every muscle that you've got. That's why all the keep fit people try and make you do it. I can't even begin to imagine what it's like rowing for hours after already having completed an exhausting day. So when I first heard this story and I heard that Jesus had seen them, I thought, oh, that is absolutely wonderful. He's going to go out there and he's going to rescue them and it's all going to be all right. Isn't he amazing? But no, he just goes back to his mountain and he leaves them there. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't fathom how somebody loving, knowing the peril the men were in and knowing that it was within his power to rescue them could do nothing. If he knew at dusk that they were struggling, why did he wait till dawn to do something about it? Where is the love in that? I tried really hard not to think about it, but I couldn't help but wonder. But that wasn't my only problem. Then when Jesus finally does go and walk on water across the lake towards the boat, he acts as if he's going to walk straight past them. You know, after having waited this long, you'd think surely he would go there and rescue them. That would be his main point of traveling across the lake. But he looks as if he's just going to saunter straight past. It was only actually when they cried out that he appears to change his mind and help them. So when I first read this story, everything in me wanted to ask, how can love incarnate behave in such a cold-hearted way? And surely you must see why I struggled. So, this evening, there are many, many things that you could talk about on this passage, but I want to answer my two questions that I had. Firstly, why did Jesus not immediately set out to rescue the disciples once he had heard about their plight? And secondly, why did he intend to pass them by when he finally did arrive at the boat? So, I'm going to start with why did Jesus not set out immediately to rescue them? Okay. So we know in verse 46 that after saying farewell to his disciples, Jesus goes up onto the mountain to pray. And that by the time he sees them straining at their oars, he's been there for some time. I would like to suggest that it wouldn't be too far-fetched to suggest that he had been praying for his disciples during this time. That he had been praying for their journey of faith. And I would further venture to suggest that he might not have seen them with his physical eyes, but he might have seen them with his spiritual eyes. After all, God does speak to us through pictures. For instance, it was when Jesus saw Peter in his fishing boat that he prophetically spoke over him that he would be a fisher of men. But in any case, whether it was with his physical or his spiritual eyes, I now believe that when Jesus saw that the disciples were struggling he immediately leapt into action. But his rescue plan was not initially a physical one, but a spiritual one. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. In this Jewish context, the sea held a metaphorical meaning, It was a place of spiritual darkness. In Genesis 1, the sea is the primordial chaos which precedes creation. And in the rest of the Old Testament, the sea is seen as being inhabited by evil. Isaiah 27 speaks of it as the home of the ancient sea monster, the Leviathan. Daniel speaks of it as the place where the four beasts come out of. And in Revelation 13, John cites it as the place where the beast with ten horns and seven heads rises out of. Therefore, when Jesus sees the disciples battling against the wave, he understands their battle is both physical and spiritual. That whilst they seek to physically overcome the forces that are preventing them from reaching the other side of the lake, they are also battling spiritually with the forces that are preventing them from recognizing him. I therefore suggest that between dusk and dawn, Jesus is battling tirelessly on their behalf in prayer, doing in the spiritual what he will later do in the physical. And when at dawn Jesus finally does step out, he does so as the victor, for he has already won the battle for them in prayer. So to sum up, to answer my first question, why did Jesus not immediately set out to rescue his disciples once he had seen their plight? I believe Jesus did immediately set out to rescue them, but that battle began on his knees. So, what about the second question? Why did Jesus intend to pass them by when he finally did arrive at the boat? As I mentioned earlier, like in the squirrel anecdote, the story of Jesus walking on water also requires the answer to a question Who is it that I am describing? And like the vicar in the anecdote, Mark gives lots of clues throughout his gospel. The person I am describing is more powerful than John the Baptist. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He casts out demons, heals the sick. Anybody got it yet? He cleanses lepers, forgives sin. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He appoints 12 disciples, mirroring the 12 tribes of Israel. Anyone? He stills a storm, raises the dead, and now he walks on water. Please tell me I don't need to go on. When Mark tells us that Jesus walks on water, any self respecting Jew would understand that this was a massive clue. Because who walks on water? Scripture answers this question emphatically. In many different passages, God is praised for his mastery of the sea. For instance, in Job 38, uh, God is spoken about uh, as regards his authority over the sea. And in Psalm 107, it declares, They reeled and staggered like drunkards, and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. But even more incontrovertibly than that, Job states, God alone tramples the waves of the sea. When Jesus begins to walk on water... He does so not because it's a particularly efficient way of crossing the water, although it clearly is. He does so in order to fulfill scripture. He does so in order to demonstrate his authority over the sea and all that it represents. He does so to visually demonstrate what he came on earth to do, to take dominion over darkness and to reclaim his rightful throne. And most notably, to answer this question to declare his divinity. So hopefully that begins to explain why he walks on water, but the question as to why he acted as if he intended to pass them by remains. And to be honest, this stands out as a really strange comment for Mark to make. It Mark condenses everything that Jesus does during the day into a few short sentences. He has to choose his words carefully. Why on earth would you put such an odd Um, detail in however if we were all first century jews this little throwaway comment should have rung a lot of bells this is the and he's got a big fluffy tail clue because it alludes to some of the texts that they would have been most familiar with texts that speak about god's self-revelation For instance, when Moses first sees the glory of God in Exodus 33, God passes by before he reveals himself, and then he proclaims his name. Let's have a look. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and then I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And in Exodus 34, the most quoted verse in all Scripture After receiving the replacement stone tablets inscribed with the law, Moses has yet another encounter with the Lord. Yet again, God passes in front of Moses and then proclaims his name. Let's have a look at that one. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. By passing in front of Moses, the Lord revealed his divine glory to him, and by saying his name, he revealed his core identity. When in verse 48, Mark tells us that Jesus intended to pass them by, he uses exactly the same verb that is found in Exodus. I have no clue how to pronounce it, but it's something like parerchomai. probably not exactly like that. He is deliberately referencing God's self-revelation, but that's not all. After God had passed by Moses, on both occasions he proclaimed his name. You will notice that his name is translated as the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Lord is used in place of the Hebrew name Yahweh, meaning I am. As a way of honoring Israel's tradition of not pronouncing or spelling God's name. The actual word spoken, Yahweh, means I am. It is therefore very significant when Mark tells us in verse 50 that after having passed by the, passed by the disciples, Jesus tells them, Take heart, it is I, or in Greek, Take heart, ego am I, the Greek for I am. He is using the same words used by God when he passed in front of Moses. In other words, Jesus is making a direct assertion of his deity for anybody who has eyes to see or ears to hear. So, to answer my question, why does Jesus intend to pass them by? It is in order to reveal his true identity. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on water, in spite of all the many clues, they still didn't recognise him. They thought he was a ghost, or possibly an evil spirit risen out of the water. Like the vicar in the story about the squirrel, Jesus must have begun to wonder what he needed to say or do to help them to see the blindingly obvious. When I first heard this story, I thought that Jesus' behaviour demonstrated that he didn't care. But in fact, the reverse is true. By all he says and all he does, Jesus demonstrates his compassion and proves that he is indeed God with us, love incarnate. However, as I think of the disciples in their boat, far away from the shore, exhausted and dispirited as they wrestle against the waves and crying out to God in their troubles but with no sign of rescue, I can't help but suspect that they would have thought, like I did when I first heard this story, that their prayers were falling on deaf ears, that their God didn't care. They might even have felt resentful towards Jesus. It was he, after all, who had ordered them out onto the lake in the first place. But he was notably absent in their time of need. In truth, the reason I think that is because I know from personal experience that has been my reaction Life as a Christian is not always plain sailing. In each of our lives, there will be times when we find ourselves besieged by the storms of life and crying out to a seemingly absent and indifferent God. But I think if we learn anything from this passage, it is that no matter how far we are from the safety of the shore and how bumpy the seas we're facing, we're not alone. Our God sees our struggles, and he doesn't stand idly by. We may not see him, but we can be sure he is battling on our behalf. It may be that the answer to our pleas for help is not immediate, but that for some time, while Jesus battles on our behalf on his knees on the shore, he allows us to battle ourselves on the waters. But as we reel and stagger in the storm, we should know for certain that the one we have chosen to follow, who champions us on the shore, is the one who has dominion over all darkness, the one who will have the final amen, and that he is the one who loves us so much that he gave his very life for us.